All right, Gary, please go ahead with your questions. Okay, um, I'm trying to better understand the relationship between the IOUCs and the LCS. I, I thought I had this all figured out in my mind. Um, and I was listening to one of your interviews a couple of days ago, and, um, and then I realized that I was still confused about it. It, was, it, it, it still wasn't adding up, so I'll read my question. Uh, you often say that the LCS is a naturally evolved system, not a creationist god playing with pet people. As I understand MBT, the IUOCs are little pieces of the LCS that have been partitioned off to play avatars in this virtual reality. I've heard you say many times that if we, the IUOCs, are serious about growing up, then the LCS will notice our intent and will work with us. However, this gives the impression that the LCS is a separate entity from us who will notice the efforts of some IUOCs and will assist them in evolving quicker, whilst it too will move other IUOCs to their own devices to learn from the hard knocks of life in this VR. So in effect it's saying, I'm going to play with this little piece of myself, and I'm going to ignore that bit of me for the time being until it evolves a bit more, and then I might come back to it. Mm -hmm. Once again, leads back to the concept of a god selectively playing with its pet people. And you certainly gave that impression in an interview with Tim Murphy when you talked about the Old Testament angry jealous god trying to tell his people how to behave, and the New Testament like touch god leading them to learn from their free will choices. At the same time, you also have the concept that we are the LCS, not separate from it and the LCS is a self-aware entity. But is it true to say that its self-awareness exists in a separate partition that is able to observe its other pieces of consciousness in the form of the IUOCs? If it is us and we are it, then I'm left with the impression that the LCS is in effect experiencing life through us, whilst most of us remain oblivious of its existence. So in other words, part of the LCS is pretending to be ignorant of its own existence. That's <laughs> is very confusing and in some ways contradictory. Uh, can you explain where I'm going on, please? Yes, I can. Uh, think of another another uh, metaphor that we can use here. Is think of the, the LCS as uh, the operating system. You know, yes, we IUOCs, individuated units of consciousness, are pieces of the LCS. And we each have free will. So we're pieces with free will. So we get to make choices. Okay, so we just think that here's this big consciousness system. It takes a part of itself, processing, memory, you know, uh, uh, purpose, takes all that sets aside, piece of the cell sets aside, gives it free will. So now we are a part of it, but we're all not the same thing. We're not, it's not like the LCS is just us. And if we all, if all the humans, if all the, the conscious things lost consciousness at the same moment of the day, the LCS would not be in a coma, you see. The LCS has its own functions and its own, it's the operating system. 
It makes the thing function. It's the thing that says, oh, I think we need a virtual reality here to give context to choices such that there are, there are, uh, you know, there's faster learning. The choices don't have much context in the big chat room. So we need to give them a, a context that has consequences, serious consequences, because that's, that will cause a lot more learning. So the operating system had to decide that that was a thing to do, create the virtual reality, that is, let it evolve, create a rule set and initial conditions, let it evolve, and then encourage we individuated units of consciousness to go log on and play, because that would be the fast track to our evolution. So the system has other things to do. It has to keep up with multiple virtual realities. Our virtual reality isn't the only one. There's others. It needs to keep up with them. It needs to keep up with characters that are in them. It needs to, uh, you know, develop the tools for uh, running virtual realities. It needs to do things outside of the virtual reality. So it's the operating system over the whole thing, but it has a lot of pieces in its system. Now we are, we IUOCs are a piece of that system. So a system can have a lot of parts. So my body is a system. You know, my physical body is a system, but I can um, learn how to say, uh, you know, develop coordination and skills in my right hand because I'm right-handed. I've developed skills that I have in my right hand that I don't have in my left hand. You know, if I tried to eat with forks and knives and things, you know, with my left hand, I'd probably make a mess and pour food on my shirt because I'm just not that coordinated in those motions because I don't do those. So though my right and left hand are both hands and they're both a part of the same system, they're different. They're not all just the same. And I, the, the system, am different than the pieces. I'm not an arm. You know, I'm not a leg. So think of the system as lots of pieces that though they're a part of that system, they're not, you know, they're not just one thing. You know, I, maybe it's your viewpoint of the system. You know, I see a system of having a lot of parts. A car, an automobile is a system. You know, it's got all kinds of parts. You know, it's got engines and, and transmissions and wheels and on and on and on. You know, seats and steering wheel. And it's got all sorts of things are part of that system. So the automobile is the system, but it's got a lot of parts. And in a sense, this system is a consciousness system, and it has a lot of parts that are pieces of consciousness. It's got other parts that work as computers, that compute virtual realities. It's got other parts that perform other functions. So it's just a system, and it's made up of chunks of consciousness, not chunks of metal like a car. So it, the LCS has awareness of its own. It is conscious. It's a consciousness system. So the LCS is a consciousness. And you might think of it as, oh, it's just a big IUOC itself. It just has more responsibilities and has a bigger job than we do. Well, you could think of it like that. But it's another chunk of consciousness with its own free will to do things. And what it wants to do, it wants to help the whole system evolve rather than de-evolve. So because it's got a system viewpoint of helping the whole system evolve, 
then it helps the pieces that can evolve, evolve. So here we are, IUOCs, we're a piece, and it helps put us in situations that help us evolve. So it can do that individually. It can work with you and it can work with me and it can work with Donna and Eric and Oliver all in its own ways, separately, because it can help all those pieces or it can help all of us by putting a virtual reality up and then we can all interact and help each other. So it's got the executive function, the executive role of organizing and developing the processes that helps itself evolve. And I say that we, IUOCs, are just a part, a piece of the system strategy for evolution. We're not its whole evolutionary game. It's a consciousness itself. It also grows up. So does that help? Does that, does that kind of straighten out the pieces or are there still kinks in there? Yeah, yeah. I, I understand your metaphor that you just, the metaphor of, say, the body, so you're saying, I am not my arm, or, or a, um, the, met, the metaphor of the car being the system, um, but it's all, but it, all of these individual parts. I think that works really well in terms of thinking of it as a, in a physical way. But the thing that confuses me is that the LCS is a conscious awareness it's not a physical thing, it's a, it's a non-physical right. awareness, and so is an IUOC. So how does the LCS put that separation between its conscious, conscious awareness and the conscious awareness of the IUOC? It's not like a, a physical part that you can separate yes. out. You're, you're right, it's not physical, and we use physical analogies because that's something we can understand. When we talk about a system that has no space, there's no here or there, that um, you know is entirely non-physical, it's a little hard for we to you know for us to get our minds around that and for that to make sense. It just sounds very uh, abstract. It is. It sounds, like we, it sounds like I'm saying I'm going to pretend I'm not listening to that bit of me over there. Right. You can do that, but how in computer terms I can describe it. And that is, you've heard the word partition. A computer can partition off parts of itself. It can take part of its processing power and take a piece of memory and it partitions that off to work a particular problem. Okay, And it does that when it does multi-processing. It does that when it runs multiple threads. It does that when it's doing a whole bunch of things at the same time. It says, all right, this little chunk of memory is going to be this Word document you know, that the, the user's working on. And anything that comes in like that, I'll send it over to that, that piece of memory. And I'll keep track of it over there. But I've got other documents coming in, and I've got other people doing things. Besides that, I'm regulating the thermostat on this thing over here. And I've got all these different tasks to do. And I just partition off pieces of myself to do that. Now, you can not use partitions. You can just say that this big processor, if you will, just keeps track of everything. Everything has its own kind of ID number, and it just keeps track of it. Or the system can actually make a 
you know, like a membrane. It says this stuff, this piece of memory now won't be used by anything else other than this job. Now that's a partition. Nothing else can get in there and use it. It's just walled off for that job. And this processor, okay, now I've got a processor and it's got eight cores. This core is going to work on this job with that piece of memory. So all of that now is is uh, kind of cordoned off as a separate thing. So they're separate things, but they're all part of the same thing. There really is only this one big processor with a whole bunch of cores that it all goes back to, but it can break itself into pieces. Now that's still physical in the sense that it's electrical, right? There's logic circuits that, that create the partitions and so on, but we have to bring it back to something physical in order to get comprehension because our vocabulary and our our thoughts all derive from language that's all based on you know physical things that happen so that's about as close as i can get to it is is a computer partitioning off pieces of its processing and of its memory and its purpose they're all set aside and it can do that a thousand you can have a thousand of those things running all at the same time and if it partitions, then all that memory is is allocated to just those jobs. If it doesn't partition, it can it can just use whatever memory is around whenever it happens to need it. And now it's all spread all over, and all the jobs are kind of intermingled with all the others physically. But the computer's smart enough to keep track of it all that it doesn't get confused. So those are two ways to do things. I think of us as a a partitioned off piece of the LCS and then the free will awareness unit is a partitioned off piece of the of the uh, individuated unit of consciousness. So it's really the same thing, but it's just pieces, a subset that's allocated to a specific task. That's all. So our specific task is to go interact with each other and by our interaction and our choices within that interaction, to evolve. And that's because that gives us more possibilities than if it's just one monolithic thing interacting with itself. That's a much more limited set of possibilities. So that's why it it uh, broke itself up into partitions, say, each partition being an IUOC, which then partitions itself again into a free will awareness unit. But, but in effect, it is still yeah, interacting with itself. Yes. In fact, it really is interacting with itself, right? Because it is the, it's the sum of all of that. So if you have this big, this, this big computer and it's serving out, you know, what, a hundred thousand web pages to a hundred thousand different users, it's still all part of that one computer, that one processor, you know, that one chunk of metal sitting there on a desk. Uh, it's all belongs to that one thing. And that one thing is has control of all the pieces. But now the big difference is that our thing is conscious. It's not a computer that just is keeping track of pieces. It's conscious itself. So that's what I meant when I said that it's the it has the role of the executive processor, the the uh, you know the operating system. It's the thing that tells all the rest of them how to line up and how to be counted and, and, you know, keeps track of all the processes of what's going on in the game and the possibilities of what happens next. It has to do all of that. It's the overhead. 
that makes all the rest of it possible. I think I think probably the diff- one of the difficulties I'm having is that I'm trying to imagine how that would be. And as a free will awareness, you just can't. <laughs> no, no, let that go. You just <laughs> saying, oh, I'm going to use that little bit of my mind over there, and I'll just let it get on. But I mean, I'll come back to it later. You, you can't sort of separate your own consciousness consciousness out like that. So that's probably well, one I mean, difficult to understand there. Well, it is very hard to put it into terms that your language can express because, you know, and, and if you can't express it in language, then you can't think about it. So it's very difficult to do that. And I'd say let that go. But we can keep different things in our mind. Okay, we have a we have one mind, our, our consciousness, our free will awareness unit, and we can have multiple things going. You know, um, you have you go to work and you probably have four or five different things going on at work all at the same time. You know, this this person's doing that for you. That person's doing something else for you. And when you have all these pieces, you're going to put it together and send it someplace else. So you've got all that process going on. And then you've got to remember to stop on the way home and get a you know a quart of milk and a loaf of bread because you got that message. Uh, you know, you, you got that text to do that. And besides that, you have. Uh, other things going on, you know, your your in-laws are coming over, uh, you know, for dinner that night. And so you can have dozens of things going on inside your consciousness that you're all juggling at the same time. And you could say, well, I'm taking a little bit of my, my gray matter, a little bit of my consciousness, and I'm putting it over here and over there and over here. And some things I, I'm working on in the foreground, sometimes it's in the background. And... You know, when I leave work and go home, the stuff at home comes up into the foreground, the stuff at work goes into the background, and I'm constantly juggling dozens of things all the time in my mind, and you are. So, but, you know, how do you explain that? How do you how do you make a model of that? You don't. You just do it, right? You don't do it. You don't say, oh, I got this little chunk up here, and I'm going to sign that this task. It just happens. That's the way consciousness works. It just happens. Intention is the driver. So you intend to keep all these balls in the air all at the same time, and you do it. And asking exactly how you do it, you're not going to be able to answer that question. You just do it. It's the nature of consciousness to be able to to, to end things all at the same time to be thinking about things and have and irons in the fire all percolating along and all need attention at various times. And, and, uh, it's matter of fact, uh, my wife, Pamela, she can't do just one thing at a time. She's, she parallel processes. So if she just does one thing at a time, it's difficult for her. Give her two or three things to do at a time. And she's feels a lot better with that. Right, there's the difference then. <laughs> I think I'm a sequential thinker. Oh, that, that's my experience, is that one thing comes into my mind, I deal with that, then I go on to the next thing. I have this feeling of like lots of things going on, and I'm dealing with them all. It's just like one thing after another. Well, you know, Gary, we guys are just like that. We tend to be more uh, linear in our thinking, one at a time, and yeah. ladies tend to be more you know parallel processing and doing... Uh, a whole bunch of things. Uh, we tend to focus more, and we put 100% of our focus on maybe one thing, and they'll put 10% here, 
you know, 40% there and 50% someplace else. So it's just kind of the way we're made. But on the other hand, we can learn to parallel process. I remember when I was, I was writing, uh, I was writing equations. I had five programmers and I keep all five of them busy. I could write the equations and hand this to one programmer on one task I was doing and say, you know, here, go program that up. And I'd be doing other ones and I'd hand that to another. And I have five programmers all would be programming my stuff for five different tasks that I had that all required separate programs. And I have them all at my head at the same time because that programmer would come back and say, oh, well, what does this mean here? And the next one saying, what does that mean there? And I could jump from one to the other. And I think most guys can do that. We can shuffle a lot of things. But whatever we're looking at at the moment, we look at that 100%. (laughs) We have a hard time looking at three things and doing them all simultaneously. And that's where the girls shine. They're better able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, thank you. That was that was good. Thank you. Uh, this uh, second question is, is a little bit related to that, but it, a slightly different uh, angle to it. Um, the LCS has created this virtual reality in order to evolve itself. Although both the LCS and this VR continue to evolve naturally, the LCS does also intervene with nudges for IUOCs to encourage them to take a certain path as in fact it did, for example, in a number of ways with the Tom Campbells you have described from time to time. The LCS presumably wants this VR to survive. Its survival is one of the driving forces, or perhaps the driving force, that motivates its continued existence and evolution. However, we, and therefore by default the LCS, are destroying this VR with our misuse of technology and our abuse of the natural world that has evolved over billions of years. As the LCS is capable of intervention, for it is the system and can decide to do what it likes with it, then how high do you think is the probability that it will intervene in a very obvious way to prevent us from destroying this VR through our own stupidity? Okay, I think it's very unlikely that it'll do that in a very obvious way. And that's because... If we are to evolve, we have to make our own choices. And that means we have to be able to make poor choices as well as good choices. You can't say, all right, you guys are free to do whatever you want as long as it's what I want you to do. That's not free will. You know, free will means you guys make your choices, you know, and then you have to live with them. You know, you have to, you have to if you make a mess, you're gonna have to live in your mess. So, or you make a big enough mess, you won't survive. It can, that's just the way it is. And it can't, it can't make choices for us without getting in the way of us evolving. We have to make the choices to evolve our own quality. So it's, it will, it will uh, intervene, but not in a very obvious way. It'll intervene in a very non-obvious way. So there'll always be some possibility that there was no intervention at all. You know, I call that plausible deniability. You know, there's always some uncertainty that covers whether there was any intervention at all. So let's say there is a uh, a big asteroid that's um, zipping uh, through the through the uh, asteroid belt, and it's going to come and hit the Earth and 
turn us all into, uh, you know, winter because it's cover everything with dust for 20 years and everything dies. And it may say, gee, that's going to interrupt my, my VR here. You know, that's going to be a problem. So it could just make that not happen. Make that asteroid belt, which is maybe just part of the physical model that's out there churning around by randomness. It could say, no, we don't want that, and poof, it's gone. And if the people already had measured it and said, oh, no, look, there's an asteroid, and it's headed right for us, well, it then wouldn't just make it disappear, because now that's a fact here, that that asteroid's there and it's heading for us. But it could change it just enough that it misses and doesn't really do any harm, because that's all within the noise, you see. So it could do things like that that aren't very obvious. And if there was somebody here who was saying, oh, okay, if I pull this lever, it's going to destroy the world. And the system could say, that's a really bad thing to do <laughs> with a nudge. You really shouldn't pull that lever, you know, and give them a few good reasons why not. And if all of that wasn't enough, it could just put that person to sleep. And people would find them the next morning sleeping next to their lever and never had pulled it, and they'd be picked up and thrown away in a slammer someplace, you see. But you would never know. Or maybe they just have a stroke. You know, you'd never know. So it could intervene with things like that, but it would always do it in such a way that it doesn't overrun free will, that, that the, those who remain standing, you know, have, have uh, no way of knowing for sure whether anything, un, you know, out of, out of the ordinary happened or not. So that's how it can, that's how it has to do its nudges. I was thinking more in terms of it's taken billions of years for the natural world to to uh, evolve the way it all works together. And we're disrupting that so badly now that yes. I was just wondering whether it might reach some kind of tipping point where the equations just don't work anymore and it just, the natural world just won't. It could be. You know, there, I think I said in my book that we have something like five, you know, uh, at least five ways that we could destroy all life on the planet, you know, that's, that, we're, that are in our grasp. We have lots of ways that we could uh, end life here, not only our own, but everything, including plants and fungus and everything else. You know, you could, we can destroy everything. But the system has other virtual realities to play, and this is a digital system, so it could... If it does, let's say, what's called checkpoint restart, which means it takes a kind of a, a, a the state vector of the state of the of the uh, simulation every every day, okay, and that means it could always go back to that point and start calculating again from that point forward. So let's say we do that. It could say, well, let's go back a hundred years before that disaster where they all blew each other up and you know covered the world with toxic waste or whatever it is we do to destroy everything. Let's go back a hundred years before that and let it go again and see if they make different choices this time. You know, it so it's got an investment in this VR and it took a lot of time for it to evolve. But it also has the ability to go back and restart or even to form a branch. It can say, all right, let's take, you know, 19, what, 1925. And let's take it from there on. And from there, we'll have a branch. We'll put, you know, we'll put, uh, we'll start another branch going. 
and the system will play all the characters until until new IUOCs can you know end up logging on and logging on until eventually they're all IUOCs again. And it could just start a branch off someplace and say, well, now I got two virtual realities going. I got the the parent one, and I got the you know the one that's a branch of that one. So because it's a digital system, it has lots of ways to, you know, to preserve its investment in this VR if it, if it needs to. But, but we, we wouldn't notice that if, if a reset happened. No, we would never, we would never notice. No, it wouldn't be a thing that would show. No. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Well, that was interesting. Um, we've come to a, a monumental point at this at this fireside chat here with Tom, and that is that we can read some of the MBT forum questions. We have one person coming in a little bit later, but I will start on the MBT forum questions, and this is quite a an event. We haven't been able to do this for quite a long time, so I will read our next question from MBT Forum from Byrne. He goes on to say, Hi, Tom. I'm a big fan of your work. This question is for a friend in extreme emotional pain who is tormented by her ex-husband, who is an extreme narcissist. When she was married to him, he would insult her daily, beat her, and take joy in putting her down constantly. One day she managed to find the courage to escape, and even though she's in a foreign country with no family to support her, she's always tried to uh, her best to look on the good side and is naturally a positive person. Even though it's been almost three years since she left, she's forced to see, to see and keep contact as they have two children who are seven and four, and both parents have... 50-50 custody. Here's the problem. Her husband has made it his life's mission to destroy her by any means possible. I've never seen someone with such evil intentions in my life. He uses her own kids against her by manipulating him. And he put a tracking device on her car and even managed to plant a camera in her bedroom by giving her a Mother's Day gift from the children. Uh, guilt tripping her into accepting it because of the kids. It was actually a high-tech alarm clock with a hidden camera and microphone. A few months back, he also trapped her in the house and beat her up again. Um, she has gone to the police but lacks the evidence. They didn't find the tracking device. It was him that took it out um, in front of her while mocking her after the police did the search. He did manage to get the alarm clock before the police could see it. When he beat her up a few months back, it's his word against hers. He harasses her one way or another almost every day. She's on the edge of committing suicide because she fears the tormenting will never end. She says she no longer has the strength to take it anymore. Um, here are my questions. I know you say the LCS doesn't like to intervene, but her ex-husband comes from an extremely rich family very charismatic and easily charming people. He is also extremely intelligent and incredibly lucky as he always gets away with his tormenting and never gets caught um, as he's experiencing some sort of synchronicity and help from the LCS. 
Um, why would the LCS let an innocent soul be so damaged and tortured to the point of wanting to commit suicide? Surely this is bad for the whole. Why give such a low quality of consciousness such power and ability? Now, notwithstanding the professional help that they should seek, but rather from a consciousness viewpoint, is there something that either one of them could do? Okay. The question is, why does the system allow this to happen, basically? And I hear that a lot. You know, people will say, well, there's this horrible thing. This is a loving system. Why does it allow this to happen? Why doesn't it somehow intercede? The system, as we just said, as uh, Gary said, uh, is not, you know, playing with its pet people. It does not intercede to override free will choices, even if those free will choices are negative and hurtful and very damaging. We come here and we make choices and there are consequences to those choices. Sometimes the life that you have to live here is very hard, very harsh. You know, it can, you can, you can look at it and say, oh, how unfair. Well, fairness really doesn't play here. There is no fairness. It just is. You come, you make choices, you make connections, and you deal with the consequences of those choices. And it's just, that's the way the system works. It doesn't come in and say, oh, that didn't turn out so well for you, did it? Well, let me change that for you. That would be overriding free will and manipulating consequences. In that case, it would be a system playing with its pet people. You know, but it doesn't do that. So you think that this is a horrible situation, and it no doubt is a horrible situation. And this lady is between a rock and a hard place. She can escape entirely, but when she does, she escapes the children too. She can try to get a cord on her side, but that's problematical. Now, if she got the right jurisdiction and got the right judge, she would probably win, but you don't know that that'll happen. And if the guy's really wealthy, then it's really hard to beat somebody who has a lot of money because they tend to be able to fix things to come out the way they want them fixed. So it's just a hard situation. And she, if she's thinking about committing suicide, which means she would no longer ever see her children. That would be a lot more drastic than just moving someplace and not saying where, and then getting back and reuniting with your children when they turn 18 years old and she'll be able to see them whenever she wants. Or asking the courts to, you know, uh, uh, change that, that, uh, how often she gets them and they get them or move someplace else so that hubby can't walk in and change your alarm clock, you know, move some other part of the world. And then every year, every six months, you just have to pay for children to fly to wherever you are, spend a week, maybe two or three weeks in the summer and fly them back. So anyway, I'm saying there's other possibilities. I'm just made up a few, you know, I'm sure there's, there's 
20 or 30 possibilities of ways that you could deal with that. Certainly that is less drastic than committing suicide. You know, you'd still have the children's lives. You can still talk every single day to your children over Zoom or some other, uh, uh, you know, video source. You can still be a part of their lives. Eventually, it won't be that many years before what they do on their computer will be what they want to do with their computer. You know, nobody's going to to uh, march around behind a child wherever they go, you know, in school and every place else to see what's on their computer. So it'll be impossible for them to be shut out of her life if she makes herself a part of them, say, uh, over the net. Okay. So that depends on how much she wants to, to do that. So there's, there's other choices that aren't as, that aren't as uh, not only dramatic and, and disastrous as suicide, which would be the worst choice of all, because that would hurt her children, take her out of a, of a terrible situation, but it would be at a high cost. And I'm sure there are other people that uh, love her as well that would uh, be part of that high cost. So she just has other, other choices she's going to have to explore and take the one that suits her best, and none of them are going to be great choices. Okay, she doesn't have any choices that, oh, this is a great choice. You know, I get everything I want. There probably aren't any choices like that. So you look at the ones that give you the most that you can get, and you do that, and you live with it, and you be positive. You just live your life positively. But you set yourself up so that you cannot be physically tampered with. It's maybe some trouble. You may have to move more than once, but it ought to be something that you could that you could do uh, or arrange. So look at your choices. Pick one that's the best possible one. And do it positively. Let the rest go. You can't change people. You can't fix situations. What you have to do is accept the situation, make the best of it that you can. In other words, make the best choices you can within those, within the, the, the decision space you've got, and then go on with your life in a very positive way. Don't feel, oh, I'm, I'm cheated, I'm so miserable, why me, oh, woe is me. All that will then make your life miserable. You need to accept it and then be positive and go on with it. So there are other choices. And that's not, you know, that's true of this person, but there's thousands of, of situations that are like this. Tens of thousands, millions of situations like this where people between a rock and a hard place, they don't have any really great choices to make. Any choice they make, the best choice they have is still one that causes pain. Well, sometimes in life you have to accept that and go on. And ending your life is a very poor choice when there's many other things you can do. Many other parts of your life. If you've got children that age, then you still probably have a lot of life yet to live. Who knows who else you might meet? What other things might happen in your life? What other happiness you might have? Don't get blinded by the misery that you have at the moment and think your life will always be miserable. These things tend to be chapters in a long book. 
And you may be miserable for a few years, but eventually your life will be happy again. Your life will be full of joy. You'll have things to smile and laugh about. So get through the hard times the best you can, and the good times will start back up again if you stay positive. If you don't stay positive, then you may be in pain for a long time. But if you can let go, let that ego go, let the beliefs go, get yourself as much out of the way of harm as you can and be positive. Embrace life elsewhere. And you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how the system will start dealing you some pretty nice cards in that other place. But you have to make the choice to change it. And once you change it, you may run into people who you care a whole lot about and care a whole lot about you and everything starts to get lovely. But you have to first make the right choice to put you in that situation. So you will have opportunities. You will have wonderful things happen to you if you just take your best choice and stay positive. After that, life will get better. Your children will always be children. So you can reestablish relationships or do them over, you know, over computers. That may be the best you can do. So stay positive. Do what you can. Accept the rest. Go on with your life. Have a good time. You'll find out life will become wonderful, happy, and joyful again. Even if you can't imagine it, it will if you can stay positive. All right. Thank you, Tom. We'll certainly put her in the global healing that's coming up this Saturday. And, of course, there'll be one every month for the MBT outpouring. Uh, Luis, please go ahead with your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. My first question has to do with... Uh, scientific testing protocols. I'm going to read it. It says, although intent plays a big role in the outcome of our experience, the rule set is important. Biology and chemistry are real constraints in this VR. It's not about getting it your way, modifying future probability. That's something I've learned from you. So nutrition-wise, I've been following a pretty exhaustive scientific nutrition review website that it seems to be very committed to delivering the recent scientific evidence regarding what we eat to a public that simply can't afford the time it takes to read all that's available out there each day. But I wonder, Tom, how reliable is a study that follows all scientific protocols, you know, double-blind, random, control group, etc., if they, if they never include intent, consciousness, in the picture? You know what I mean. So even if 50 persons ate blueberry powder on a daily basis and 50 persons ate a placebo, some same flavor and color, the conditions were balanced, non-smoker, non-caffeine intake, nothing to block the antioxidant potential of the fruit. What about intent? What about belief? Is the information that science gives us regarding diet and healthy daily practices useful? Yes, it's useful, but we need to take it in context of what it is. 
Okay, we need not to believe that it's something more than it is. When they do research like this, and even if they are immaculate in their in their research, it is very hard, if not impossible, to keep the placebo effect out of it. It's really, really hard to do that. I mean, you may do double blind and you do other things, but there's always mind-to-mind -mind connections between the researchers and the people who are, you know, the subjects. So even if you try to call out all of the normal things, there's other things. Those intentions, there's you may, you may make the words very clean and anesthetic, but just the facial expressions, the body language. You know, I mean, there's just lots of ways that we communicate. We pick up on feelings of people. We have, you know, people who are tense or people who are relaxed. And the difference between now they're relaxed and now they're a little tense or now they're talking to you and now they start clicking their pen on it why they talk to you and all these things so that we don't intellectually process it they all give us information about what's going on and, and what to expect and and so on so you it's really hard to take the placebo out of the research for one so some of their results are going to reflect placebo now that's the placebo that the experimenters bring to the situation. There's also placebo that the, that the subjects bring to it. The subjects come in with their beliefs. A subject comes in and, and he has a very strong belief that it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, it just doesn't make any difference to the health. And that person will tend to keep the same poor health no matter what you feed him because he's convinced that that's the way it is. So he will tend to change things. Well, placebo is just the, you know, the intent, right? Changes future probability. That's placebo. So all of the, all of the subjects also come in with their beliefs and their attitudes. And they may think that they read someplace that berries were really, really helpful. Any kind of berry, you know, they're very, very good for you. And they would have read this and they have that attitude and okay, they're giving me berries. All right. I know that's going to work. Well, it'll work better because of that. Somebody else can't stand berries. You know, they always get stuck in their teeth. Uh, they don't, they don't like them. They don't like the flavor. They don't like anything. Well, that berry isn't going to work for them very well because they have a negative attitude about it. So all of that comes in. So Yes, they try to take out as many variables as they can, but they're not going to take out all the variables. Secondly, when you do this, when the people do this research, what they come out with are statistics, averages. Okay, so they will tell you that if you eat blueberries every day, then you have, you know, that the average person in our study, or that 25% of the people in our study, you know, had better liver enzymes after eating blueberries. All right. So that's a statistic about their study and their population. Now, just take some random individual off the street, and is it going to affect his liver? Who knows? Maybe, maybe not, you see. So statistics don't say anything about an individual. So here's some individual, and is it going to help him? 
You never know. It doesn't say anything about individuals. It only says that if you get a thousand people together, 25% of them will have this reaction, but you don't know which 25%, you see? So this information does not give you any hard facts about individuals. It only gives you hard facts about probabilities. That's all, about probabilities, statistics. So you as the individual, you read this, and if you see that it's not, you know, that that 99% of all the people that, that took this got that, well, that's pretty strong. Now, that's a very strong recommendation because it's got a very high, you know, very high probability. So the, what's the probability? And let's say they did really have a good random sample, which often you don't have. You know, the population varies. So if you get populations who volunteer to be subjects for food tests, you're only going to get people who are very diet conscious, people who care about food. You know, that's who's going to go to these things. Well, that's not the average person. So your population has its own characteristics. Okay, so now 25% of people who care about food and their diets get this reaction. Now that's different. You see, so there's lots and lots of reasons why you can't take data and feel real confident that it's going to help or hurt you. We're going to help or not help you. But you'll look at the probabilities. So they gave this to thousand, you know, they gave this to 10 people. And here's what happened. Well, 10 people don't make a, you know, a population. Statistics on 10 people are, are like not worth looking at. A thousand people, ah, oh, starts to get interesting. 10,000 people, even more interesting. A hundred thousand people, starting to look good. A million people, well, you know, that's probably a good population, but nobody can afford to do studies on a million people or 10,000 people because it costs too much. It's much easier to do it on 10 people because that doesn't cost so much. So typically they're done on, you know, 20 people, 50 people, 30 people. Sometimes if they're really big studies, they're done on thousands of people, but most of the time not. If you look at their samples, often, you know, they're even as small as, you know, like 10 people sometimes. Well, that doesn't say much of anything about anything if it's that small, as far as statistics go. So, you know, you can't do a study on, on two people and one of them had helped and one of them didn't. And then you, you say that, well, 50% of the people were helped, you know. That's true, but it doesn't, it's not real meaningful. So you have to just be aware of all of that. And the problem is that often this evidence is is offered, it's given, it's published in such a way that it sounds like if you take these things, you know, this is going to do this for you and it's going to do that for you. And it sounds very positive about the outcome when that's really not the case. So you have to be aware that, all right, 80% of the people had a good reaction to this and it helped them out. And it only costs, you know, $20 for a bottle. Well, it might work for me. $20 isn't very much, so we'll give it a try. And we'll see if it works for me. Well, if it's $500 a bottle, you probably say, eh, no, thank you. Sounds like a scam. $500 a bottle. It's too much because there's only a certain probability it's going to do anything good for me. 
So it kind of depends what you buy, what you don't buy, based on, you know, how honest they are when they present it. Do they tell you how many people were in their study, or is that never mentioned? If it's if it's over a thousand people, they'll probably tell you because they'll be proud of it. If they don't tell you, it's probably because they're not particularly proud of it. So if they never mention things like that, then you either have to do more research, call them up, write them a letter, send them an email, and try to find out, well, how many people were involved in that? And what sort of people were they? Where did they come from? Were they volunteers, or did you randomly pick them from a, you know, from a very large phone book? You know, how did, how did you go about getting them? So it's a buyer beware on these things. Realize that, that people who advertise are trying to sell something. And this, you know, the claims they make are generally made in order to sell a product. And if you really want to know what the science was behind it, you need to read studies other than the ones people selling it have made. You got to go do some other research. So if this is, you know, Dr. Smith and his wonderful, you know, pills, then find out what other people said about these pills. You know, go look and see other facts. Because if you just take the literature that Dr. Smith and company write, then that's not all that credible. So I, that's the thing. It's good. We need to do research. It's not that the research is useless. It's good. It helps tell you that, well, I'll give a try to these berries because that seemed to work for a lot of people, so I'll give it a try. But realize that it might not work, or it might work. But it's better than just saying, well, I don't know anything, so you know, who cares? I'll just eat whatever comes by because I'm too stupid to pick out the good stuff from the bad stuff. Educate yourself and try the things that look like they might help and see if they do. And if you just wasted $20 because it didn't really help you, well, that's okay. It's the price of an education. You know, it doesn't mean the next one won't help you. So it's, a, it's an inexact science, no matter how you do it. Anything that deals with people is an inexact science. There's lots of variables that they cannot control, no matter how careful they are. It's very difficult to have large samples because that's too expensive and takes too long. You know, if it costs you know a million dollars to do the study, the study's not going to get done. It just costs too much. So that's kind of my opinion on that: is you just don't don't expect too much, but don't be afraid to give it a try. You know, if it's uh, Something you, if it's money you can afford to lose, and you read the research, and the research sounds good, then give it a try. If you say all oh, all the research is bogus, then you'll never learn anything. You got to be open minded and say, well, it might might be all right. Okay, these guys are pretty good. You know, they seem to have good protocols and they seem serious. But having appearing to have good protocol and seeming serious, of course, is what any fraud would any fraudulent person would first do. They would want to seem serious and have ac excellent protocols. You know, whether they actually do or not, you have to dig into it a little more, which often is impossible. So that's why there's so many scammers in the pill in the pill business. Take this pill, increase your IQ, you know, lose weight, become more beautiful, you know, everything. There's pills for everything.
And most of it's just marketing, not much else behind it. But that's, that's the information age, lots of information. You got to sort through it to get something that's good. And then you have to be open-minded and try stuff if you can afford it. And make sure it's not going to hurt you. Yeah, read the ingredients. <laughs> yeah. So, Lewis, yeah. I don't know if that helped or not, but that's just kind of common yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying that uh, it's a uh, it's a lead. Like uh, the information uh, can guide you to make better decisions, but uh, it is not ultimately the what it will assure you that the the results. Uh, yeah. that you are expecting to get. So Exactly. Yeah. And, and I would say one more thing, and that use your own intuition. Mm -hmm. You see, if you can get your right brain to sit down and be quiet so it's not always guessing, then use your own intuition as to whether this will help. And when you put that first pill in your mouth or whatever it is, first spoonful of, you know, goo, feel it. How does your body react to that? How does your body feel about it? You know, be in tune with yourself. Does your body go, oh, that feels really great. Yeah, we needed that. Or does your body go, ew, what are you, what, what are you putting in me? You know, your intuition will tell you things like that. So now, of course, if you don't have much control over your intuitive side, then you just confuse yourself because your intellect just be guessing and your intuition will not be all that accurate. But with time, you can develop that intuition that it can tell you a lot of information like that. So that's another thing. Develop that intuition to the point that you can rely on it and trust it. Still stay open-minded, but you get a lot out of your intuition if you practice. Yeah, it really resonates with me. Thank you, Tom. My second question, I had uh, wrote it, but uh, I think it's a little more clear to me now. So I, I will just ask. So I've heard a lot of people uh, that had uh, opening experiences that for me, as Eric was saying at the beginning of this, it, they totally seem clear and they seem profound. But somehow there's many people on YouTube that end up in this experience of saying, yeah, it's love. It's like the point consciousness that you were describing, which in which the only statement that you can make is I am. Mm -hmm. So it sounds positive, but somehow they end up saying yes, and it's also meaningless, it has no purpose, there's no growth, that's the only thing it is. Uh, so why, from your perspective, why do you think that they un end up even coming from a true experience? They end up talking about it like it's meaningless, per has no purpose, and also actively denying the possibility of, uh, you know, what we call paranormal activity or even the experiences of the afterlife and all that that I found so rich and so helpful for me and for uh, many people. So wh why do you think they end up uh, talking like that and uh, teaching 
from that perspective? Basically, in denial. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's because there's a con. There's a there's a fundamental conflict with one of their beliefs. You know, and they have a life, and that life has been structured according to their beliefs. So, particularly if you believe this is a materialistic reality, okay, it's materialistic and it's deterministic, and that's just the way it is. Then, when you experience something that is contrary to that, then you have a choice. You can either accept that experience and say, wow, that was contrary, and that happened, so I know it happened to me, so I know it's true. And, you know, and you can think about it. Well, was I just, did I just make that up or da 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 da? You can, you can look at that, but sometimes things are just plain true. You know, you can't, you know, you, you know, it's just there, it's in front of you. So they have a choice that they can accept that and tear up their foundation, their whole life, their careers, their, you know, everything they've done has been based on their attitude about the nature of reality and what's important and what isn't and the things you can rely on and the things you can't. And if they say, okay, I'll accept my experience is true. Now they have to go back and tear everything else up. Everything else they used to believe, everything else they thought was true isn't anymore. It's not deterministic. It's not materialistic because I had this experience. So they say, well, on one hand, I hadn't, just deny the experience and maintain my my internal viewpoint, or I accept the experience and I got to change my internal viewpoint. Most people opt to deny the experience and not change their internal viewpoint because that's more work, that's more effort. Now they have to go back and think of all the things they have said and done and and what they meant and you know maybe they've they've told a lot of people that had paranormal experiences that they were hallucinating and they were this or that now they have to eat all that crow they have to say well i really was a jerk wasn't i going around telling all these people stuff and now i've experienced it and uh they're gonna have to realize that they've you know they've been part of the problem and that they've you know had problems and maybe cause problems for other people and been negative and so on. And people don't want to go there. So the denial is just the choice of least resistance. It's the choice that's easiest. So I think that's why a lot of people make it. They don't want to have to tear up their, you know, what they built their life on, tear up that foundation and then build something up new because that's a lot of work. And then they start coming up with, well, how could I dismiss this? Oh, maybe it was just, maybe I fell asleep and had a dream. Uh, maybe this, that, and they come up with all kinds of outlandish reasons why what they experienced really, they didn't really experience it. They only thought they experienced it. And usually they convince themselves that that's the case. And then they go on. And they don't talk about it and they don't share and they just go on so it's a it has to do with with not being open you know with being closed off person and with being uncomfortable with admitting that 
what they understood was wrong, that they've been, they've built their life on a, you know, on ground that uh, turns out not to be right. And they have to go back and kind of relook at everything. Well, it takes some courage, takes some time and effort. And most people would rather just not go there. They would rather just declare that they have been right all along and are still right. And let's not go there anymore. Let's say they had a meditation experience. They just learned to meditate because it would be calming. And then they had this paranormal experience where they went someplace and they remote viewed or saw something out of body or got a some kind of data dump and it disturbs them. Well, their result is I'm not going to meditate anymore. That may be their outcome. Meditation is not a good thing. It creates hallucinations. Yeah, and uh, they're done with it. So... People take the the easy path, mostly. And if you're closed-minded, you can't let anything else in, and you're trapped by your beliefs, then there you are. You're stuck. But what about the, the people, for example, that had an experience, they actively talk about the experience, but somehow they stay in this understanding that uh, there's only one substance, And it has no potential for growing up. And they say, for example, when people ask them, okay, so uh, how do I grow up? And they say, there's no growing up. There's no meaning. What's the meaning of life? They say, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's you just realize you are the whole and that's it. Well, that's because that's easy. You know, it's the same thing. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. Well, then I don't have to look for one and I can't be judged by not having it. You know, if there was really purpose and meaning and, and a right way and a wrong way, well, I could be doing it the wrong way and I could be ignorant and I could be all these things. It's just easier to say, eh, none of that, none of that exists. I deny it all. And now I can just go on being whoever I am, however I am, and not have to uh, deal with ever being wrong. No, I don't lack meaning. There is no meaning. No, I'm not shallow and, and uh, you know, whatever. There doesn't exist. So it's the easy route to take. Deny the stuff that, that's troublesome to you. You know, we can ask the same question about the scientists, right? 19, early 1920s, double slit experiment said, this is not a materialist reality. You know, it's probabilistic. Well, now you still have a majority of physicists a hundred years later saying, no, it's materialist reality. You say, yeah, but what about that double slit experiment? Oh, yeah, that's just weird science. You know, what do you mean it's weird science? What kind of science is weird science? What is this category of weird science? And oh, it's just weird. You know, nobody will ever know. It's impossible to understand. Sometimes nature just won't tell us what it is. And it's one of those things. And It's not that we're dumb and don't understand. It's it's impossible to know. Okay, so these are scientists. Their whole job is to be open-minded and search for the truth. Right? That's their. That's what they're supposed to be good at. And they look at something and clear as anything. Materialism is wrong. That hasn't made a big dent. So. There you go. 
and this is not just your general public, you know, worried about whether there's meaning or not. These are scientists who are supposed to get at the truth, but the truth is inconvenient because they don't know what to do with reality being probabilistic. What does that mean? Where does that come from? How does, you know, how does that fit into anything else? What can I do with that? And they come up empty handed. They don't know what to do with that. All right, it seems to be a fact, but it doesn't go anywhere. So let's just call it weird science and pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of thing. So people do that. Smart people, people who who have does, you know kind of devoted their life to uncovering truth, right? That's that's the way scientists are. And they still do that. So we, we have to forgive the average guy who just doesn't want to believe that there's any meaning to life. You know, got to have an open mind first, you know, and then you have to be skeptical. Tom Campbell here. I and MBT Events hope you liked this video. We now have well over a thousand hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing, and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment, along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured, we will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.